It's uh, been the, a great joy to get to preach this wonderful gospel, this testimony of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to John. Uh, it's been rich to continue to hear awesome testimony from you, uh, our church, um, and just how much we're continuing to just really f- see and savor our Lord in and through the text as we uh, spend our time um, studying it well. To give you a quick reminder for where we are in the testimony of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, it's Friday morning of the day that Jesus would be crucified. The night before, Judas had betrayed him and led the authorities to arrest him with the strength of 500 soldiers and the temple police. They found him in the garden where the disciples had often frequented. Following this, the most of the disciples scattered, although we see that a few kind of straggle behind and follow at a distance as he goes to trial throughout the night. Religious trials would take up the majority of the evening as self-righteous, sinful men looked for a way to rid themselves of Jesus. Jesus would go through a total of six trials. Three religious Jewish trials and three Roman or civil trials. Some short and more of a formality, others longer in their inquisition and conversation. If you're interested in more insight into some of this that we've already covered throughout the night, I encourage you to go go to the podcast, discipleschurch.com, and grab any of those sermons. Pray that they're a blessing to you. Understand better the context of where we're at. So far, the Jewish trials have happened, and now they bring him to Pilate, who's the Roman governor in that region. So before we dig in to our text today, which is verse 33 through 38, I want to give just a quick recap into them arriving, the Jewish authorities arriving with Jesus to uh, the governor's headquarters, as we see testified in verse 28 through 32. Look there with me briefly. Verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. The governor headquarters in Jerusalem um, were there so that he could come into the city to conduct business and oversee some of these larger gatherings with all of his militia and, and authority. He could come marching into town when the Romans were essentially outnumbered as they were on the annual Jewish Passover. Tens of tens of thousands of Jewish folks would come in from different regions to celebrate the Passover together. And so his strength is there to try to kind of keep everyone in order. Herod the Great had two palaces in the region, and one of them was used for the governor to stay in when he was in town. John mentions here that it was early in the morning, probably close to sunrise. What a night it's been as we've been covering for weeks the happenings of that last evening. It's ironic that John testifies here that the Jewish leaders were concerned about not entering the, the governor's headquarters in order to avoid being defiled while they, in being there, were conspiring to have the only innocent man to ever live be murdered. <laughs> right? They're worried about some, some defilement from some religious laws that they've created. Look at verse 29 through 30. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. So Pilate basically has to come outside to meet them because they won't come in. And that's clarified. And he says, So what is he guilty of? And and like I mentioned before, did you catch their answer? He's guilty, that's why he's here. They don't say what he's guilty of. Why? Because he's not guilty of anything. Because he's innocent in every way. Because they are contriving and manipulating a verdict throughout the night to try to sway and swing this thing. They can't say what he did. They're manipulating the moment to try to get Pilate 
to give him an order of execution. And so to deflect, they just simply try to say, hey, he's doing evil. That's all that matters. Look at verse 31. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. Pilate is well aware of the weakness of the Jews' case against Jesus. And so he says, you go judge him by your religious laws. But this was insufficient. Why? And we got to see their aim. They want him publicly executed in the worst and final way. They want his following and everything that has happened to go away for the sake of their own political position. And to do this, they need a ruling of the state. The second part of verse 31, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death, the Jews said. So while Jewish and Old Covenant law did give permission for putting to death for some reason, the Jewish leaders are again presiding a very prominent locale in Jerusalem. Their, continue, their desire to continue that prominent rule means they've got to really stay in order and to continue to really walk very carefully with the Roman oversight that's around them. They, their political prominence and power is their greatest aim. And so they're looking to not subvert Roman authority, but to find a way to utilize it to accomplish their mission of wickedness. Verse 32, John reveals in his commentary that this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So there's another reason that Pilate condemning Jesus to death is a critical detail of God's foreordained plan. If the Jews were to utilize their laws to condemn Jesus to death, they would have to kill him by stoning him, which was the old covenant prescribed punishment for blasphemy, which is essentially their major charge against him. Crucifixion in the Jews' eyes was so much worse, so much more heinous and long and public and Execution in this way was considered on the same level as being hung to death. And, and it was just, it was on another level. John's reference to Pilate's involvement in Jesus being condemned is the only way capital punishment meant crucifixion. It's the only way that could have happened is by his rule and thereby fulfilling the prophecy of how the Messiah would die by being hung on a tree. Jesus himself said this in chapter 12, John 12, 32-33, being very specific, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. The details of God to see through his plan for his glory and our good are phenomenal, church. What an amazing emphasis on the fact that God is the one ultimately in control of even the workings of Jesus' death. Yes, evil men are at work doing evil things with evil intentions, and yet God is fulfilling in his sovereign ways, above all that, his eternal covenant of redemption for his eternal glory and our eternal good. See God at work, just even in the same way that Jeremy spoke of the things of Job earlier. So with that context, let's dive into verse 33 through 38 this morning and Pilate's first interaction with Jesus. It makes sense why it leads off to say, so Pilate entered his headquarters. Why? Because he was just outside talking to the Roman, to the Jewish officials and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of of the Jews. Pilate surely knows the reputation of Jesus by now. Uh, Pilate's very presence in Jerusalem is so that the Roman authority can be presented as strong and mighty amidst a massive gathering of the Jews for their annual Passover celebration. So with that would have surely come reports of the most known radicals in the area what kind of Jewish uprising may, be, may happen while they're here. Surely Jesus and his followers' names are a part of that conversation. But consider 
how Jesus looks to Pilate in this moment. There he is, standing face to face. He surely doesn't look kingly. I mean, Jesus is bound. He's been ridiculed throughout the night, beaten in the face. He's not in a physically good place. And there he stands before Pilate, an accused prisoner. Consider that there is a, an absence of any other signs which would associate him to what the world would associate what a king is. So this must have really puzzled Pilate. I mean, I'm told you're the king of the Jews. Like, but the, you? I mean, surely news of his triumphal entry would have gotten to Pilate to happen just a few days before. But Pilate's, his ego is so grand. It's as grand as the gold in the residence he is being loaned for the weekend. The size of his army that stands in the the room surrounding him around the building that he's in. His flesh surely did not give Jesus any kind of due credit as he as Pilate looks down his nose at this man. Surely, Pilate's inquiry here of Jesus is is then not as much of what he really wants to know. So are you the king of the Jews? But more along the lines of pointing out his lowly current state in more of a form of mocking him his lack of kingliness. But isn't this the way that God ordained it? That Jesus would go low to save those of us who were the most low in our sin? That he came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Matthew 20, 28. But Pilate is a man of the flesh in every way, in the worst way. He's an authoritative man of Rome. Rome dominated the world in that day. He's a man of human prominence. And so his ego is through the roof. And in that, how desperate is the highly esteemed one for the mercy of of the man bound in chains before him. You tracking with that? How desperate is he for the mercy of the one before him? And yet he's got no clue. Herod the Great was also called king of the Jews, for he actually was the king of that region. So the actual political king is known clearly by Pilate. So another part of Pilate's inquiry here must also be testing Jesus to his maybe political prowess or or interest, his posturing. Are are you trying to represent something you're not? Because I know the actual king. Kind of testing his mud a little bit. And what are you bringing to the table here? Look at Jesus' answer in verse 34. Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? This is Jesus' way of saying, hey, do you really care? Or is this someone else's concern and you're just doing your job? Like those Jews who spent all night trying to stir up faulty claims against me. Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priest have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Pilate makes clear in his response that it's not his personal concern, but other Jewish authorities have brought him to to rule, to do what the governor does. And so he gets to that. He says, so what have you done? 
In this, Pilate denies any personal interest in the matter, saying, no, I'm not a Jew. I'm not concerned about your religious controversy. But he says, what is it that they have against you? And this is Pilate's way of kind of saying, hey, I'm the judge and jury here, so it's my, I've got to figure out what to do here. So let's, let's hear, what are they accusing you of? Let's get to the business at hand. And notice that Jesus doesn't appeal. He doesn't play into Pilate. He doesn't begin to go through a deep resume of his amazing accomplishments on earth, his perfectly sinless record. The many blessings he's given out. He also doesn't go so far to present his messianic credentials which the world has been waiting for, the Messiah, whether they know it or not. And here he is to bring atonement and salvation to a worldwide people. Why, why not defend himself? Why not push forth his messianic credentials? Why, focus on, why stay focused on kingship? And, and I believe it's because of the context he is standing before a public official of the Roman government, a governor. The authority of the king is the point of contention that Pilate has, if any. It's what's on his mind more than anything else. So Jesus uses now this context to proclaim his global kingship. He doesn't get into trying to what they've accused him of and how that's not him. He doesn't go there. He says, let's talk about me being king. And so here's what Jesus says. Verse 36, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. We've just seen Jesus in his testimony of his life. We've seen him push back the temptation of Satan in the desert when he had been fasting for 40 days, when his flesh was very vulnerable. Satan comes presents them the kingdoms of the world and says, bow to me and you can have all this. And Jesus resists. He resists the temptation of crowds calling out for him to reign, to lead them as king. He continues to resist. To convince Jesus to be satisfied with ruling only of an earthly kingdom would have been to derail the covenant of redemption set forth by God from before creation by which he would rule an eternal kingdom. For example, in, in John 6.15, Jesus rebuked some of the people for trying to make him a political earthly king. And church, we have to see that he is so much more than a king on earth. His reign is so much higher than that. He is king of all of the planets and the solar systems that contain them. He is the king of all the kings of the earth. There is one other place in John's gospel that Jesus uses kingdom language and what is interesting is that it's with another very prominent figure in society, a very high-ranking Jewish official, Pharisee, by the name of Nicodemus. Another man who's lacking spiritual discernment. This is interesting because in all the other synoptic gospels, all the other testimonies of Jesus' life, kingdom language is used regularly. But in John's gospel, here, Jesus speaks of it here and in chapter 3. Turn with me to chapter 3 for a few moments. Let's look there. Be reminded of this conversation. John chapter 3. We'll look at a few verses starting with verse 3. Oh wow, you're in for a treat this morning. So much as we continue to see church ties these all of what Jesus is doing and this testimony of John's gospel together again and again and again. It is just awesome. Praiseworthy. Thank you, Lord, for your written word. John 3, 
Verse 3, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus just got done telling Jesus that he knows a lot. Not in those words, but basically he's like, yeah, I know a lot. And Jesus basically is saying in his reply, you don't know what is most important, and here's how much you don't know. What Jesus is saying here in verse 3 is that no amount of human knowledge or reasoning or believing will bring you to spiritual understanding. Only new birth will. What is dead must be made alive. Later in the New Testament, the imagery used for this again and again is is things like the deaf need to be able to have their ears on stop so they can hear, the blind so they can see. New birth is required. Now this is a, a a shocking indictment for Jesus to tell Nicodemus because in the economy of those high-ranking Jews, they all believed that they had a future, a place in God's future kingdom. So this was a pretty gross attack on Nicodemus's system of belief. That he would only see the kingdom of God if he was born again? Unless one is born again. The word again here, more literally translated, means from above. Unless one is born from above. So Nicodemus shows his lack of spiritual discernment and that he's really only thinking of the literal, physical, and horizontal. Here's Nicodemus' reply. Look at verse 4. Nicodemus says to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? This is a pretty gross thought there. Um, I mean, literally, you can just see his like, wheels are turning. Like, what? Hey, buddy, what are you talking about here? Here, Nicodemus reveals Jesus' very point that he doesn't know. He doesn't get it. All Nicodemus can see or think of is the physical because he's lacking spiritual discernment. The other mention of Jesus, by Jesus, of his kingdom, we see in verse 5. Look at the next verse. We'll I'll read verse 6 too. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. Jesus brings, his reply brings clarity that even if you could literally be born again physically, it would not accomplish anything more than the fact that you were born physically again. And and don't we kind of relate to that? Have you not had junctions in your life where you're like, if I could just go back and do it again? You know? The, the re- when we first got Nintendo in my generation, the fact that we could reset the game and start over was like so rad. <laughs> really. This is awesome. You... Think about that, that longing to say, if I could just go back and do it again, my childhood, my teenage years, some of the things I did that were so foul and had so much consequence in my life. But you have to see that you would, ju- you would be just as lost and as spiritually dead. Sure, you might make a better go of it, but you would still be spiritually dead. Why? Because without spiritual new birth from above, you have no spiritual discernment, no spiritual life. When he says be born of flesh, that refers to our natural or physical birth. Born of spirit is Jesus' reference to what is necessary for eternal life, for reconciliation with God, for kingdom citizenship. So what is new birth? Well, it's the doctrine of regeneration. We speak of it often. It's an important doctrine to know. Regeneration is a secret act of God in which he imparts spiritual life to us, sometimes called new birth or being born again. We saw this, for example, in chapter 1 of John's Gospel when John talks about those whom Christ gave power to become children of God. They were born 
not of blood, not talking about physical birth, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, not because of anything we wanted, but of God. That spiritual birth, that new birth, was a gift of God, a work of God. That's regeneration. That's new birth. John 1, 13 is the text that is read. So here John specifies the children of God are those born of God. They are the ones in the kingdom of God. God's sovereign work in regeneration is spoken of throughout Scripture, but one of the great and precious places we see it is in a prophecy of Ezekiel. One of the closest parallels we have to this language of being born in water and spirit we see in Ezekiel 36, 24-27. This is a beautiful visual of what regeneration is for us. He says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your righteous uncleanliness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey all my rules. New birth is essential for true saving belief and for kingdom citizenship because the heart must be made alive if it's going to trust in God. It must be freed from its enslaved state to only do sin. We're bound in sin, the scriptures say again and again. Not sick in sin, not kind of available to choose. No, we're bound, we're dead, we're we're enslaved. If you are truly going to repent and turn from your sin and trust your life to God, you must be reborn. You must be spiritually made alive. This is good news because it's the only lasting way that we will ever experience a true new beginning. You can restart all you want in this life. Many of you want a new beginning. You are longing for a fresh start. You want real change in your life. True new birth in Jesus is the only way you'll really experience that in any kind of lasting way. All other man-made restarts will inevitably fall into the abyss at some point as condemnation still is over you. Only new birth given by God is the means to our becoming kingdom citizens. John the Baptist was the voice, the, the, the forerunner of Jesus. The promised Messiah of old, it was said, would have a forerunner, an announcer. And that person is John the Baptist. And what was his message to the world as Jesus is walking onto the scene, most famously, he says in Matthew 3, 2, repent. What? For the kingdom of God is at hand. Kingdom language. The kingdom of God. For those whom God gives new birth, eyes to see, ears to hear, and savor the gospel. The Bible says you will repent. You will see your sin and want nothing to do with it. You will see Jesus and run to him and give your life to him. That will be your response in new birth. You will believe. This is salvation. Paul describes what God does in our salvation like this. Colossians 1 verse 13. He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us into what? The kingdom of of his beloved son. Paul says to the saved in Philippians chapter 3 verse 20 that our citizenship is in heaven. The good news is that this has been God's plan from the beginning. Matthew 25:34 then the king will say to those on his right Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Church, we are kingdom citizens. God's redeemed people are a people set apart 
We no longer belong to this world. We belong to God. To a kingdom not of this world. And so when Jesus says, in what can feel like the most passing by statement, my kingdom is not of this world, all of that that we just talked about is wrapped up in that. And I pray that you see and savor your citizenship, your identity in King God's kingdom, and it just changes everything else. It's a perspective like nothing else. For a refugee to be given citizenship in a land he longs to be in is a game-changing reality for that individual. Consider how much more game-changing your eternal citizenship is in God's kingdom. And let it overwhelm you with praise for his holy name. Pilate doesn't get it. He's only concerned with the temporary, with his temporal kingdom and political position. Jesus goes on. He says, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. For him to repeat again, my kingdom is not of this world, is to emphasize something that I think we can quickly miss, and it is massive. He's saying his kingdom is not of man. It's of God. That's like a big old mic drop kind of moment. See our God, church. See him ruling and reigning over his eternal and glorious kingdom and give him all due praise. Amen? Daniel chapter 7, 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That's the kingdom that the saved, that you who are saved are part of. Amen? See the power of this revelation. My kingdom is not of this world. Is this big old warning to Pilate? It's a it, it's it's a mic drop moment. He's basically saying there is another kingdom to which I belong, and it will not be brought about by the fighting of men. This is his way to say that the game I'm playing here, the, 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 the position I'm speaking of, is above all of your grand and authoritative world power that you claim to be a part of right now. Do you see? Don't forget who he's talking to. That is the weight of this text. This is a gauntlet kind of proclamation. And, and can we stop and consider what is so sweet among this truth? Jesus' kingdom did not fight for him. Why? Because that's what he was there to do on our behalf. Amen? It's the gospel. Jesus would fight and he would win. Do you know that that was promised before time even existed? Ephesians chapter 1, 3 through 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Kingdom language. Even as he chose us 
in him when before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. It was also promised at the beginning of time, in the garden, at the fall of man, God turns to Satan and says in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Speaking of the game-ending TKO knockout of that promised one over the serpent. When you crush the head of a serpent, it's done. Yeah, you'll bruise him. Jesus was hurt in amazing ways, but overcome. Risen, resurrected. Not still in the grave, not done. Church, it was also promised from long ago, from the prophets. And one of the sweet promises, and you'll recognize it quickly, how sweet it is. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Amen. We we have a king who fights to claim victory for us so that we can fight to proclaim his victory among the nations. Now there's a massive layer of what Jesus is saying here that is great news to me and you, but it is completely missed on Pilate, who does not have ears to hear or eyes to see. He is spiritually not discerning not reborn. And so here's his response. You ready? Pilate said to him, so you're a king? (laughs) Why does Pilate inquire again? Because he doesn't get it. He's not born again. Because the things of God are foreign to him. And so Jesus replies, you say that I am a king, For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. A.W. Pink's a theologian of 100 plus years ago. He said it well. He said, the great design before Jesus in his first advent, that's his first coming, was not to wield the royal scepter but to bear witness unto the truth that he had faithfully done, yea, was doing at that very moment. This was his answer to Pilate's, what have you done? Remember Pilate asking that? So what have you done? He himself, Jesus, was the word of God was truth incarnate. This is what he has done. He brought truth into a world that was utterly addicted to lies. And they rejected him. But not those he came to save. Amen? So Jesus continues. Hear his emphasis. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Yeah, you who don't have spiritual discernment, who are not of the truth, you who are not reborn, you don't get it. And so here's the proof. See what Pilate says next. What is truth? If you are born again by the grace and election of God, 
then you are now of the Lord of truth and live for the Lord of truth. If not, you are of the father of lies. Jesus really drove this point home. I told you it's going to all marry together. We see it again and again throughout our series. Look at John 8 with me briefly. John 8, 43. Jesus says, Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You can't bear it. You can't bear the truth. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Is this not the reality of Pilate, who says to Jesus in his reply, what is truth? Stands before him and he still doesn't get it. Why? Because he's of his father, the devil. Father of lies. He's not reborn. He's not part, not claimed part of God's kingdom. As the scriptures say again and again, no one seeks for God, believes God, listens to him unless they're born again. If this is true, then they still belong to this world. And their father is the devil, a liar. Whoever is born of God and knows God is the one who will hear his words. Believe in the truth. The truth is God. John 8, 47, the next verse. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. So do you see, it's the same thing he's saying to Pilate in our text today. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. So let's ask again, who is of the truth? Who is of Jesus' kingdom that is not of this world? The answer, biblically, is his sheep, his elect. Those whom God has given Jesus from the beginning to redeem from slavery of sin and condemnation to be Restored to a right relationship with God and reign with Him forever. Again, in the context of John, beautiful, John chapter 10, consider the words there of Jesus. John 10, 25 through 30. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The words that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe. Why? Because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life that's kingdom language again and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hands I and the father are one There are those who, who are many, sadly, but who do not believe because they're not of God's chosen people. They've not been given new birth. And so the truth is folly to them. There is also those whom God has chosen from before time for a son to come and redeem and bring into his eternal kingdom. They hear his voice and they believe him. They hear his voice because they've been born again and given ears to hear the gospel and to savor it. And Jesus, who is truth, knows them. Pilate doesn't know him. That's why Pilate's asking, are you a king? What is the truth? I ask you today, do you know him? Do you trust him with everything? It is religion to say, I trust Jesus, 
for salvation, but to hold back here your job priorities, your favorite hobbies, your children. Do you trust Him with your life? Do you die to yourself and live to Christ with everything? He's the Lord of your life, not you. Those born of God who hear His voice and trust in Him, they surrender their deadly doing and their old ways, their failed ways of self-rule, and they die to themselves and begin a new life. That's why it's called new birth. A life unto the King, King Jesus, for His glory, for His purposes, for His commands. So let me ask you who claim Jesus as Lord, you who call yourself Christian, Are you known for wearing the gear, but for never being on the field? Meaning, you love to talk about Team Jesus with your words, with maybe your Sunday mornings, but you're not known for living for Him or like Him. You're not known for being truly radical and sold out. That you give all that you are to the name of Jesus. That you follow his command to take up your cross every day to follow him. That's what Jesus means right here in this text in John 10 when he says, and they follow me. His sheep's lives are transformed and committed to him. They're not perfect. Oh my gosh, we struggle every day. And we need him and his power, and we need the church, and we need ongoing work of the word and sanctification to mature. The kingdom of God is not of this world, but it is in this world in this way. The kingdom of God is everywhere where Jesus is king. Is he king of your heart, of your life? And so for those who he gives new birth, who believe he gives them kingdom citizenship, that's what he means here when he says, I give them eternal life. Eternal life that never ends. I mean, we we can't fathom it. I can't give you an illustration that puts bookends on eternity with God. It's that good. There's no reference. What a promise. What a gift. I pray that as a result of today, Your citizenship in God's kingdom means something all the more to you. What a gift you've been given. I got a really cool mountain bike when I was a kid. (laughs) How stupid is that? Like in that era of my life, that was the bomb. I got this awesome mountain bike. So legit. I, I, I once stood on one of the highest mountains in the Western Hemisphere in Canada, above the clouds on my snowboard. Below the clouds was the worst, darkest, gloomiest nightmare day you've ever seen. I was standing so high on this mountain, I was above the clouds. Sky so blue, I feel like I could look into into lands far, far away. I was like above the world. And a sea of white fluff as far as I could see. It was amazing. And that is nothing compared to life in God's kingdom that never ends. It's the taste, it's a a crumb. 1 Corinthians 2.9 says, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Do you cherish that? you know that you're a part of that if you are here today and you are tired of lies and you're tired of your own lies and the deceit of man and your own sinful selfish ways 
And you today see King Jesus as King of Kings, as the only way to God. And you see what he did on the behalf of sinners, undeserving sinners. Then repent, turn from your sin, and trust your life to Jesus. And know God, know truth, and become part of his kingdom. Be saved. If you are a part of his kingdom, then his own teaching says you will listen to his voice. You will obey his commands. You will testify what he has done. And you will give your life to make much of his holy name. Amen? Amen. Matthew 25, 34. I read it to you earlier. I want to close with these two scriptures. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And what did Jesus say in John 14, 3, speaking to his blood-bought family? If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you will be also. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this wonderful text and, and insight to this most beautiful interaction between such a high-ranking authority in, that, in the world at that time and Jesus, our Messiah, our Savior, our Lord. Who are we that you choose any of us? That, that you save any of us? That you invite me to be a part of your kingdom when what I deserve is eternal wrath? Oh God, your mercy and grace is amazing. Your love for us is clearly shown in depths I can't even put words to. You are a good God. That we would be a people who hear your voice and follow you faithfully. We look for ways to constantly make much of your name, to die to ourselves and serve others, just as you went low, that we would get low for others and joyfully serve one another, and even our enemies for the sake of the gospel. Lord, I praise you for the mighty work you're doing in and through our church in the awesome and great and fun season we're in and the rebirth of this historic church and transition and new name and new location and just a working in many generations, many men and women from many different backgrounds. Lord, you are at work in us and I pray that our lives would be a testimony of the great work of our God that many more would be saved and a part of this family we love you and so we rally together in one voice to worship you this morning to exalt your holy name to stand solid on the rock hear us Lord in Jesus name we pray Amen. Let's rise together.